And she said, my people, talking about the Americans, did something careful to the Japanese in this country. But you must forgo that and, and make the best of what you will get. People like us who were uh, actually incarcerated, we really didn't want to talk about it. And I think one of the hardest things about the oral histories is that you do forget about painful things. And so we had these meetings and, you know, the, our intention was that we would counteract the bad press mm -hmm. that we saw coming to do uh, whatever, pull whatever strings we can to stop the kind of hysteria that's developing and right. to do all that sort of thing. Hello, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Rihilko Weno. I work as an archivist here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been building the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These more than 2,500 long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. In the first two episodes of season three, we explore the experiences of Japanese-American artists who were incarcerated during World War II and the reverberations still felt today. On February 19, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which gave the Secretary of War the power to designate large sections of the United States as military areas. Created in response to the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the primary effect of this order was the forced removal and incarceration of more than 125,000 Japanese Americans from the West Coast to roughly 75 camps across the country. While 12,000 German and Italian nationals living in the U.S. were detained under sedition rubrics, more than 65% of the newly incarcerated Japanese Americans were Nisei, which is to say they were born in the United States and full citizens. Kei Sekimachi, a textile and woven art trailblazer, spent a significant part of her teenage years in incarceration camps. Her family had been settled in Berkeley, California, and she was in her first year of high school when they were displaced. Here's how she described forced relocation in her 2001 oral history with interviewer Suzanne Bazerman. So when you say you were relocated, was this your whole family as a unit? Yes, uh, my mother and the three of us, the three girls. And what happened with your, your home, your, where you had been? Well, we were living on Berkeley Way, all I remember is that my mother, uh, you know, rumors started flying around that if you had anything Japanese that you had to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And so I remember her breaking Japanese records and even books, I think. You, you weren't supposed to have any right. books All in of Japanese. Sudden, yeah, the so, world kind of right. went in some strange direction. And then, of course, we were told that we were going to be relocated and so that we were going to an assembly center and that pack up your belongings. Mm -hmm. And so it turned out that my mother worked for a, a very nice family here in Berkeley mm -hmm. and the Dennis's, and they 
said they would take as much stuff uh, that we wanted to store. And so that's uh, when uh, where these trunks came from. But we did pack up a couple of trunks. We put what we thought was precious to us. And yeah. I know I saved my paper dolls. Because uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. as we were growing up, all we had to do for recreation was to play with our paper dolls. Uh-huh. And that meant, you know, cutting out the, the dolls out of the newspaper uh, every Sunday and then making clothes for them. So I still have them. This was a, sort of an art project combined with having a toy that you could play with in the end. Yes. Uh-huh. And these were... Were they fashion dolls or kind of more little girl dolls? Or uh, They were uh, both. Uh, we had, well, Jane Arden was one of my favorite, I guess, characters. And uh, anyway, I had a doll. The doll was only about 10 inches high. Or, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I made her a vast wardrobe, and mm-hmm. uh, we built stories around the dolls. And, uh-huh. and, so it was uh, like, it was it, it, in a sort of a funny way, it's related to textiles, isn't it? Could, you know, being... Uh, substitute fabrics, mm-hmm. uh, having some of that aspect to mm-hmm. it, like a, a real dress. And you said you left those behind? We left them uh, in the suitcases. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess that's why I still have them to this day. Mm-hmm. And I still can't throw them out because I guess we really put a lot of work into them. You know, I'd really like to know a little bit more about that transition between what life had been like before and, and transitioning into a a relocation kind of life. What what was the what was it like for for you with the non-Japanese people, your neighbors and friends? What how did they react if at all? We didn't have any interaction with uh, mm-hmm. other uh, Caucasians. Uh-huh. And as for as far as uh, school, I think maybe uh, we didn't really even talk about it with our classmates. Right. We uh-huh. just knew we had to go and we did it. Yeah, just straightforward I, and I, right. I, I'm sure the the dentists that your mother worked for, if they were willing to store the furniture, they must have felt had a compassion. And, right. But as far as everyone else, it just sort of happened, and you went, you went along with what uh, was laid out for exactly. you. Exactly. Uh-huh. 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 Where was it that you, you left for? You you had a, some suitcases and boxes, I suppose. We or? had some suitcases and, well, as much as we could carry. That yeah. was about it. So it wasn't much, and I do remember... We left a whole bunch of stuff right in the middle of the the room, and at that point, dealers were coming around mm-hmm. buying up uh, what we left. And uh, we we did have a upright piano that was given to us, and that went for five dollars. That was probably a pretty good price for it. <laughs> a little upright in those days. But anyway, I do remember that uh, we did get five dollars. And then uh, what I do remember the most is that we left a bunch of quilts. That were uh, these quilts were given to me, given to my mother by one of the people she worked for, mm-hmm. and uh, I do remember that they were beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think now, oh my gosh, if we only had them, yeah, these beautiful old quilts, right? Uh-huh. They were old, like crazy quilts, and really nice, really old nice styles. Yeah, uh-huh. and yeah. she uh, these came from uh, two women that were school teachers uh-huh. in Oakland, and. Uh, they probably came from the Midwest or somewhere, uh-huh. and so they were in their were, family somehow. Right. And you were how old at this time? I was about fourteen. So you, you gathered up your belongings as much as you could carry, and then you were transported to uh, uh, by where? bus to Tafferan Assembly Center. And uh, I must say, and then we were assigned uh, rooms in a barrack. Well, there were cots, and we were we had uh, straw mattresses and. 
it was just bare other than oh. the, the cot. Uh-huh. And somehow uh, we managed for, I think, it was about three months that we uh-huh. were in Tanferan. Uh-huh. But I must say that, you know, the first few days I thought, uh, well, we had to stand in line for um, at the mess hall uh-huh. for meals. Uh-huh. And you, I, re- I really thought, gosh, are we going to survive? Because uh-huh. nothing was organized. Yeah, and so even f- your basic needs for food were in question right. up in the air. Yeah. Uh-huh. The Tanfran Relocation Center was located just outside of the Bay Area in Northern California, and it was a stopover between California and the Topaz Center in Utah for thousands of Japanese Americans. Chiura Obata, a celebrated painter and professor at the University of California, Berkeley, was also incarcerated at Tanfran, where he continued to teach and cultivate community. He established an art school to provide structure, purpose, and opportunities for growth, and he overcame significant administrative hurdles while mobilizing a diverse cohort of teachers. Sekimachi recalled his fortitude and impact. And uh, so what did you do? A 14-year-old girl, three months in this uh, army-like existence, I Right. Guess. Well, uh, they did uh, uh, the older uh, Niseis who were like in Cal by that uh-huh. time. They started a uh, school. And then uh, Mr. Obata, or Professor Obata from Cal, mm-hmm. was in our camp, and he started an art school. Uh-huh. And so that's where... My sister and I, my younger sister and I uh, went to. So, so he, every day we drew and painted. So that must have been a bright spot mm-hmm. in some way mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. otherwise pretty drab existence. Mm-hmm. And what was Mr. Obata like? It, it seems like quite amazing that somebody would, out of the dreary period, just think of something that he could do to help others. And what, what, what was he like? I don't know that I ever really got to know, know him very well, but uh, certainly... Uh, you know, just a very capable person who uh-huh. got this thing organized and got the school going, and quite a few students were there. And and you said you painted and and drew. You'd like they had art supplies for you. Uh, we, I think, finally art supplies came to uh-huh. camp. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was a step in the right direction. Yeah. So you felt like you really spent learned some something that was uh, helped you later on. Or, yes, or? I, I think so. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, in school. Uh, the only classes I liked were the art classes. In it, fact, the it, only classes I did well in were the art classes. I, I was at Berkeley. At Berkeley, I was not a good student, and I really didn't like school. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I did enjoy my art classes. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I must say, uh, camp wasn't all that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, uh, here my mother had to work, and you know, trying to raise three right. three of us, and so. It was a hard time, and uh, in camp, we were taken care of, we, we were housed, and we were fed, mm-hmm. and you were able to earn a little money eventually, uh-huh. and so my mother worked as a dishwasher in one mm-hmm. of the mess halls. and It was not good, but it, it had some pluses. Yeah, like and so. we were together. And you were together. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that was certainly a, mm-hmm. something to be treasured. Right. And did they have school for you uh, uh, in addition did, to the yeah, art classes? They did have school. By the uh-huh. time uh, Tanf- uh, we were moved to Topaz, Utah, and uh, they did have schools organized. Actually, I graduated high school in, in Topaz, Topaz, class of 44, uh-huh. something like that. Yeah.
In October of 1942, the population of Tanferin was transferred to Topaz War Relocation Center in central Utah, where the art school was re-established. While the camp was more organized than Tanferin had been, Obata's teaching staff was trimmed, but the arts came to life through collaborations such as the arts journal Trek, which became a forum for documentation and expression of camp experiences. You can see fully digitized copies of Trek on the archive's website. Miyoko Ito, a painter and watercolorist known for her vivid abstractions, was a senior at University of California, Berkeley, when her family was forcibly removed to Tanferen and Topaz. In her 1978 oral history with Dennis Berry, Ito discussed navigating this period of upheaval, and in the following excerpt, she describes marrying Harry Ichiyasu while still in college to avoid being sent to different camps, and eventually resuming her education at Smith College on the East Coast. Well, then I finally came to my senior year, and the war broke out, and we were to go to her camp. And uh, I wondered if you'd had. In the meanwhile, you know, I'm sort of sneaking out with my husband all the time. I really blame my parents because they had really cheated me out of four years of normal courtship. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was never lonely because I was socially accepted by the art department. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it was it's different from acceptance of my daughter at lab school in Chicago because even though I was totally accepted in school, I was never invited to their home. Did they say you had to go to the camp or could you just go anywhere away from the West Coast? There were so many days that we could leave. Before, before we went to camp, there were so many days we could leave pack up and just leave and go east or west. I see. Uh, there was a territory that's off limits. I see. But those people did not fare too well, except those people who went to New York, or, you know, it's so cosmopolitan, they were yeah. accepted. But we just didn't have the foresight, see. Most of us, the greatest number of people were my age, just out of school, then there were parents who were going into... Middle age or old age. Mm -hmm. Did you had you finished school? No, I was in the middle of my senior year, and when th things like that happen, people become even closer, and I was sheltered even more. Badly. And uh, there was uh, Leonard. I forgot Leonel. Is it Leonel Venturi? Yeah. A historian was yeah. there as a visiting instructor. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how important he was then, but, you know, we were all very social. Now, here he is, Italian national, free to go wherever he wanted. Mm -hmm. The limit was put on me. Mm -hmm. Eight o'clock was curfew. I could not travel mm. so many distance. Mm. So, because of me, all the parties were held in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, because of the war, people became so much closer, and there were more parties than ever before, hmm. and there were more contact with instructors, sort of inner contact, not only for me, but for others, too. Mm -hmm. It was just a short period. Hmm. It's just, it's less than six months, really. We were very close. Hmm. See here, uh, April, mm -hmm. it's April 1942, we had to leave. So I said, unless 
we get married, we might be sent to different camps. So we went to my parents and said, we're going to get married anyway. So they, they gave their consent. What could they say? So we did go to the same camp. Uh, we were married in April 11th. And by end of April, we were in camp in Tamforan, which is a race track. Where was it at? Uh, uh, just off San Francisco. Oh, so it was? It was the first camp we went. I see. And, and our quarter was... Uh, you know, I got married in April 11th. I guess I had to go to Berkeley for a few more. Well, yeah, from 11th to end of the month, I was commuting. Uh-huh. And sense. I had to have a pass to commute. And in that short period, I remember one picnic they held for me in um, Pismo Beach. Isn't that beautiful? So we evacuated at the end of April to Tamperan. And here all these instructors would bring bearing gifts. You know, we thought, well, there was food shortage all over anyway. But, you know, beautiful fruit, and especially Earl Lauren, who used to dress like a dandy. You know, he used to wear spats in the winter. He, he looked like an undertaker. Uh-huh. And I hope he doesn't get, don't ever get released to Earl Lauren. And here he would, you know, the last person I would think would bring anything all the way to a dusty camp. Here he came. I happened to be away on the other side of the track. They could not find me. And here Earl Oren was only one who took, so to say, war seriously. He wanted us to make war posters. We simply refused to do it. But at the same time, he was you know, such a, a generous person. Yeah. Well... I thought I had graduated, but I didn't know because my diploma didn't come. And they said that they would graduate anybody in liberal arts without going through final examination. So I thought I graduated. Of course, they couldn't take risk with engineers and doctors and people like that. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, my diploma didn't come. It finally came. Uh, not only did I graduate, but I graduated with highest honors, and, and here I had no place to go and cry, but, you mm-hmm. know, but the ladies' room, and even there it wasn't private, because was, there were no doors. Uh, <laughs> I was very encouraged by that, because it had nothing to do with grades. By the time I went to Berkeley, I was no longer an achiever. Mm-hmm. I would just sort of say, a gentle lady, see, I did get very good grades in art department. It was something that the faculty voted on, and I'm sure others more deserving than I in terms of grades, but they had chosen me simply to encourage me. Mm-hmm. So I really was encouraged. Yes, that's true. In the meanwhile, my husband brought me, uh, he was very active in camp. He's kind of a leader, kind of personality. Uh, some papers to fill out uh, distributed by Quaker Society, Friends Society. So I just sort of automatically filled out all the students and someone, you know, potential going to graduate school. And uh, I gave choice of schools I might go. And one day I heard that uh, Smith would like me to come. In those days, communication was not that. So you had an offer from Smith. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought it was a way of getting out of the camp. And it was time... Another change. See, Tamforan is in a strategic place by the coast anyway, so we all have to evacuate to inner land like Utah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So the uh, rest of the people were going to Utah, 
and I was let out, thinking that my husband will follow me within two, three months. And that evening, I left for Smith. Another leading figure of 20th century art, Ruth Asawa, famed for her pioneering suspended wire sculptures, was also set on her artistic course during her time as an incarceree. Born in Los Angeles County, Asawa was also a teenager when her family was forcibly removed to the Roer War Relocation Center in Arkansas. She graduated high school in the camp and left to attend college at Milwaukee State Teachers College, as college enrollment at a non-coastal institution was permitted. Asawa was unable to complete her degree, however, as schools would not hire a Japanese-American for the requisite practicum, as she recounted in her 2002 oral history with Paul Karlstrom and her husband, the architect Albert Lanier. But, but I had very good advice from a teacher in, in camp, uh-huh. and she said, my people, talking about the Americans, did something careful to the Japanese in this country, but you must forgo that and and make the best of what you will get. And I think that was very good advice to me because I didn't I didn't feel that I was a, then a victim that I was. I didn't want to be a victim of of that of, of being victimized. I wanted to be on top of it. So I think that attitude was very good for me to have. Even even when they rejected me, then I said, "Well, I'll go elsewhere." Oh, was that when you were in teacher's uh, yeah, college? Oh, and it, yeah. Was that in Milwaukee? Is, mm-hmm. And they, they said that you wouldn't qualify for a certificate. They, they would never Sunday. hire uh, a Japanese to, to teach. But when was that, right after camp? That was during the camp. Yeah, right after camp. Uh-huh. How, how did they get off saying that? Was that just that they were being realistic well, and say it would be I hard think, to get one? I or? think... I think in some ways it was it was to protect me mm-hmm. at at the time and also because no Japanese could get a job at that time. And so so I went to Black Mountain and I met all these extraordinary people which I wouldn't have if I everything was laid out for me. It's a good point. And you met Albert. Yeah. And so you were all your whole family then in, in yeah. San Francisco, everything came from and, and my invest- discrimination. My investment is in in a city rather than being everywhere. It's better for me to be to invest in San Francisco. Can you explain that? Because I think there's a lot to that statement. Could you explain what you mean by that? I mean that, that if you if you have placing your investment and you make it good, 
then it's better than being a little bit here and a little bit mm-hmm. there in Chicago, New York, and Houston. It's better to be in San Francisco and make and work on 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 being effective in mm-hmm. one place. I guess it's like being, uh, you know, how you say a big pond and small fish, right? Or a big fish in, in small pond. <laughs> She also elaborated on the aftershocks of the mid-century as institutions asked her to make work reflecting on the incarceration in a broader historical context. Because with Siegel, there can be whole stories, yeah, whole right, narratives like right. the Holocaust thing. Up yeah, and yeah. And that, that's obviously a different, different use of the... They wanted me to make a Holocaust. They did? Shall say. Mm-hmm. They wanted it to be... be Terrible, tragic. Mm-hmm. Oh, we our our life as immigrants was much harder than the internment. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just surviving was much more intense. So they wanted a dramatic statement. Yeah. About internment. Yeah. To make it equivalent to the concentration. Yeah, the death camps. Like the Washington Monument is a, a crane entangled in barbed wire. Who doesn't want to do that? Um, yeah, well, uh, it's, it, it's interesting because then I guess you ask yourself what makes ultimately a positive statement acknowledging the, the, the reality of the history, but that then can still somehow from that make a positive statement mm-hmm. looking forward. Because everyone suffers being a slave. Mm-hmm. Everyone suffers. I mean, every every culture suffers. That's not a very interesting thing to me. For making art. For making art. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a big philosophical yeah. Question, but I, I I did gather that from what I read, what I've seen. You've done these commissions, and you you, the one, the recent one at State. Yeah. Uh, the subject of that is uh, that rocks and and of the internment. Mm-hmm. The the red them seen it, yeah. next next to each rock, the place that they did the. When it happened, where it happened, mm-hmm. I didn't want it to happen. In in the in peace, I wanted it to be a statement on one place, and so I made bronze. If with just every everything was just uh, a document that I didn't want to put myself in. I see. So I... You're being like an archives. Huh? Just yeah. like the archives? Just, of, just like that. Just like I wanted, I wanted it to be that, and they made them. So the men made rocks, mm-hmm. and I made rocks.
Based in New York City, Isamu Noguchi was a sculptor whose career was on an upswing in the years preceding World War II. Though he was not forcibly removed from his home since he was a citizen who resided outside of the strategic military areas, Noguchi had traveled to Hollywood and sought to advocate for those incarcerated by forming Nisei Writers and Artists for Democracy, a group that lobbied on behalf of Japanese Americans. Eventually, Noguchi visited the Poston camp in southwest Arizona, where he was a voluntary, then involuntary, incarceree. Here's how he laid out the sequence of events in his 1973 oral history interview with Paul Cumming. As I said, my whole uh, social conscious attitude, mm-hmm. by social conscious we mean left-leaning uh, attitude, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all came to a head because of the war, you right. see. And uh, because of the Hitler-Stalin mm-hmm. uh, pact, mm-hmm. as I say, I, I went out to, the, to California with Gorky mm-hmm. right. and in the spring, and then remained there during the summer. Mm-hmm. And when Pearl Harbor came, I was mm-hmm. still in California. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was on my way to <coughs> San Diego mm-hmm. uh, to pick up some onyx, mm-hmm. or to look at some onyx mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And I happened to turn on the radio, and that's where I heard it, you see. Mm-hmm. And my re- immediate reaction was, oh, well, oh my God, I'm a, I'm a Japanese, mm-hmm. or I'm a Nisei at least, you mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. I better get in touch with other Nisei and see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So when I got back to Los Angeles, I went to the uh, Japan- Japanese-American Citizens League, mm-hmm. you know, place, mm-hmm. and sort of uh, introduced myself. Mm-hmm. and uh, became acquainted with them, you mm-hmm. see. I, I felt I ought to be able to help in some way. Mm-hmm. And actually, I mean, I, I'm one of the older Nisei, you know, as Niseis right. go. Because right. they're all rather young, I mean, mm-hmm. at, that, at that time right. anyway. Right. So I felt I ought to be contributing something. And uh, you know, I would go to these meetings and, uh, you know, that sort of started a whole uh, you know, sort of uh, effort on my part, uh, as was the uh, attitude of most uh, left-leaning people in those mm-hmm. days, was to try to make something good out of a bad situation, you mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one tried to, f- at first, uh, try to uh, sort of uh, fluff over the Stalin-Hitler, you know, mm-hmm. affair, mm-hmm. and uh, say that uh, you know, one should uh, fight for the good cause mm-hmm. and, and f- forget mm-hmm. about the bad things. So that uh, my uh, my uh, intention at that time was to try to uh, uh, try to find something good that might be done, whatever good can come of it, and try to, for instance, uh, I organized a, a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Los Angeles and San Francisco called the Nisei Artists and Writers Mobilization for Democracy. A very fine mm-hmm. title, you see. Wow. Yeah, wow. And uh, we, uh, mm-hmm. uh, this, uh, this group, uh, uh, which uh, I was the uh, instigator of, mm-hmm. uh, met in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. In San Francisco we met in the uh, studio of Jean Renal. Mm-hmm who uh, was a friend of mine, mm-hmm. who um, at that time was uh, left-leaning. You know, she uh, let me use her studio. Mm-hmm. And so we had these meetings and, you know, the, our 
intention was that we would counteract the bad press mm -hmm. that we saw coming, mm -hmm. to uh, to do uh, whatever pull whatever strings we can to stop the kind of hysteria that's developing and right. to do all that sort of thing. You see, that was our intention. Mm -hmm. What happened? a whole. I mean, I have uh, the papers for those mm -hmm. times. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole, uh, you know, the mm -hmm. this whole thing kept on going from mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor Day till the evacuation order, which came mm -hmm. about in March, I think, mm -hmm. uh, when we had to get out of California. You know, mm -hmm. everybody had to get out, mm -hmm. including me. I had to get out. Right. Yeah. I abandoned my car in Los Angeles and flew out from San mm -hmm. Francisco. Came to New York, you know, places more or less deserted of artists. I mean, mm -hmm. they had all disappeared, and mm -hmm. there's no, nothing to do. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. and so I went to Washington, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, went around uh, inquiring whether there's anything I can do. You know, I went to the mm -hmm. State Department. They said, No, go away. There's nothing you can do. I mean, uh, you're the last person we want to see <laughs> to that effect. You're yeah. a half breed. What do we want with you? I mean, oh. You know, yeah. and in uh, OSS, I know people there. Mm -hmm. They said, "What do you want to do? Get involved with killing your brother?" And I said, "I guess not." And so mm -hmm. goodbye. And then uh, finally, I happened to bump into John Collier. Mm -hmm. You see, and he says, "Well, come on over and let's talk about it." And uh, and he suggested, "Why don't I go into one of his uh, one of the camps, which is going to be under his mm -hmm. uh, uh, direction, because it's going to be under 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 on the American Indian land, you know, right. Mojave Desert." Mm -hmm. And that's how I happened to go to Poston. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I went out to. I snuck back. I snuck back into California. Actually, I had no business going. <laughs> to pick up my car, and I drove from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and over the you know mm -hmm. the pass there mm -hmm. into into Nevada, mm -hmm. and then down south, you know, mm -hmm. to Poston, and got there before the evacuees got there. So I uh, sort of, uh, you know, was one of the uh, sort of people getting the place ready. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all the people mm -hmm. at the American Indian Service, including mm -hmm. the lawyers and all those people, mm -hmm. and the various uh, cooperative people, the Rushdale cooperative people, and all those mm -hmm. people were coming in there to help, you see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was among them, mm -hmm. excepting when the, when the people arrived. And then I had to, I had to become one of the internees, naturally. So I was locked up and I couldn't get out for seven months. Yes, and that that made me very uncomfortable. And uh, but uh, Kalia's suggestion was maybe I could help sort of uh, make the place, uh, you know, mm -hmm. pleasant. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, uh, you know, uh, made plans for the park development and this mm -hmm. and that and the other mm -hmm. of the place to make it into a park-like place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the trouble was that the. Uh, what John Carlyle wanted and what the Royal Occasion Authority would countenance were two different things. You see. Mm -hmm. John Carlyle right. wanted to make it into a perfect sort of uh, what, the, what the Mojave Indians couldn't do, he thought the Japanese could do in making the place blossom, you see, oh, with a new sort of water coming in there mm -hmm. from, from Parker uh, Dam. Mm -hmm. You know, so my plans were sort of skewered by the Royal Occasion Authority. Mm -hmm. So I, I put it around and you know, became uh, you know one of the internees. Mm -hmm. it, it just happened that as I was leaving with Gorky, you know, on this trip, right. I got a medal saying the Nisei of the Year. So, oh my God! That's how I really realized I was a Nisei. I would have, I would have, wouldn't have thought of it, you know, really otherwise. <laughs> oh, it's incredible! So it came at the wrong time. Yeah, exactly. Well, at the right time. <laughs> yeah.
Well, what was it like being, you know, put into this camp with all of these people? And no, you suddenly you become a you become a member of the minority group. You see, mm-hmm. the tendency of people with mixed blood, I think, mm-hmm. is to be either you pass or you you don't pass. You see, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you pass if you find it convenient and if you associations are such that uh, you don't have to mm-hmm. think about it. You don't think about it, but when you're forced into thinking about it, mm-hmm. if you're forced into thinking about it, I think most people take the side of the, of the less privileged. So I was supposed to motivate, you know, start pick up things myself. Yeah. And, uh, it's rather difficult under those circumstances. And um, after seven months, you know, I got out on a pass, mm-hmm. and I went to Washington and saw. Uh, Milton Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's the reason I went to Washington first, was mm-hmm. to see Milton Eisenhower, because he was head of the camps, the War Relocation Authority, the brother of, of President Eisenhower mm-hmm. later on. You know? mm-hmm. And we had a very frank talk mm-hmm. about you know, the dichotomy of interest between the War Relocation Authority and John Collier. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were trying to make it unpleasant. I've never been back. I'd like to go and see what it's like. No. I'd like to know what's, what's there now. Are the, are the, are the uh, little lakes that I built in the dam circuit mm-hmm. still existing or not? I don't know. While several camps have become memorials, the long-lasting effects of incarceration are often less visible. The histories within these centers and the experiences of the incarcerees live on through their families and the stories they pass down. In reflecting on the many successes of her career, Kei Sekimachi also considered the silences surrounding that period of the Japanese-American experience and how she carries it with her still. Uh, the uh, Delray Beach. Oh, uh-huh. So this is uh, fairly close to Miami. Uh, they organized a show called Japanese-American Craft Invitational. I used to have the catalog. I had quite a few catalogs, but I must have given them all away because I, I can't locate one right at the no, moment. No. But that sort of maybe didn't start, but that was one of the first uh, exhibitions that I was included in with Japanese Americans. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That was a first uh, mm-hmm. experience with maybe even becoming aware of mm-hmm. a kind of community of Japanese American artists. Yes. Yeah. And then in uh, 1990, the Open Museum actually the history department put on a show called Strength and Diversity, Japanese-American Women, 1985 to 1990. And so I got included in it. And in that exhibition, they even wanted some watercolors I had done in the assembly center, Tamperan, so I, and my paper dolls. Paper Were they doll- <laughs> on exhibit there? Yes. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. And then uh, besides those uh, two things, my paper columns or paper sculptures, do you remember who curated that exhibit? Was it Carrie Caldwell as okay. well as the Japanese American Historical Society? I think they got together and uh-huh. put this show on. And I must say, this was a very exciting event. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, maybe my mother had just uh, died, uh-huh. so I had I was going through her things, and so they even used a notebook of my mother's, one that she had made when she was taking English classes, and that was nice. Also, uh, her uh, sash that she uh, showed me when I started to weave that she was a a weaver, and so that was on exhibit. 
uh, among a few other things. That's great. So that was I had no idea. Yeah, that was very nice. But the nineties. Let's see. Have we gone through the eighties? Yes. The nineties. There were many, many, many exhibitions, mm-hmm. and uh, exhibitions of pe- of people's collections. For instance, um, the Minneapolis Institute, Institute of Art received uh, a gift from was it uh, Ruth Kaufman, mm-hmm. uh, her her collection of miniature textiles. Right. And uh, I remember that exhibit? Yeah, it was called In- Intimate and Intense of small fiber structures. And so I had a paper bowl that she had purchased for me in that show. And they uh, put out a beautiful little catalog. It was mm-hmm. square. I and, have that catalog. Yeah, I know it's yeah. a lovely uh, form, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's a nice, nice It just thing. goes so well with the, uh, yeah. the contents of the Absolutely. show. And then right after that, there was another collection given to the Cleveland Museum by Mildred Constantine. The show was called Small Works in Fiber. And I had a paper bowl in it. And then also the uh, uh, the Toledo Museum of Art w- was given, I think, uh, some of uh, some pieces from the uh, Sachs collection, and so there was an exhibition called Contemporary Craft in the Sachs collection, and all these exhibitions had catalogs to go mm-hmm. with it. The Sachs collection was an, uh, a book, actually, mm-hmm. and then some basket shows started coming up, and your your work, even though. It- some ways it might not be considered basketry was embraced by this term basket. Yes. Uh, the term is used very loosely, loosely. today. Uh-huh. So uh, anything that could hold something or, you know, with, mm-hmm. it looks like a container or a vessel mm-hmm. gets thrown in with the baskets. Okay. Uh, there's many more basket shows to come up. But let's see, in 1995, there was a show at the University, uh, San Francisco State University. And this was an all-Asian Exhibition and it was called "With New Eyes Toward an Asian American Art History in the West," and it was a, a very interesting exhibition. And it's actually uh, it was curated by Irene Poon Anderson. I'm not familiar with her. Uh, she is in charge of uh, the slide collection at uh, SF State, and um, it, she says that it opened her eyes. Well, it certainly opened my eyes because. You know, I didn't know that there were so many uh, Asian American artists, you know, right, right here, here locally, but there were uh, quite a few. And then uh, I think it was Whitney Chad- Chadwick who told her, you know, uh, Irene is a photographer. And so um, uh, Whitney said, why don't you uh, document all these uh, artists because some were pretty elderly. And so from that time on, she started photographing all these uh, Asian Americans and finally uh, with the hopes that maybe a book will come of it and an exhibition. And finally, this January, it did happen. And so uh, this is a catalog, and it's called Leading the Way, Asian American Artists of the Older Generation. So there's a bunch of us in it with our uh, photographs that Irene took, as well as uh, pictures of our work, and then a little bit, a, a little bio. Mm-hmm. So she kept going. She the kept project. going. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was just in January, uh, 19, well, this year. And uh, the show took place in a small college in Wenham called Gordon College in Wenham, Mass. Oh, another Asian show uh, took place, too, at the at Pro Arts Gallery in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. And that was in 98. And it was called Art After Incarceration. Mm-hmm. So that somehow the, the uh, sensitivity to this uh the unique aspects of Asian American art 
uh, it started being investigated mm-hmm. in, the, mm-hmm. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe more books came out on the, the relocation, too. Mm-hmm. I think the young that's people... True. That's true. There was the settlement and all that mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it was the younger, you know, the Sanseis and the Yonseis who really wanted mm-hmm. to know what happened. And so they started questioning their parents. And I think there are projects that are still going on, mm-hmm. uh, people being interviewed and... Right, uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Opened up a whole era that was very quiet, yes. both on the part of the American government and the people that were affected. Yeah, and mainly, you know, uh, people like us who were uh, actually incarcerated, we really didn't want to talk about it. And I think one of the hardest things about the oral histories is that you do forget about painful things. Right. You put it yeah. way back, you know, in, right. at the back of your mind. So And, and it seems separate from you mm-hmm. in your present mm-hmm. life. It's mm-hmm. almost like it's someone else mm-hmm. or some other lifetime. Mm-hmm. I hope you wanted to do this too many more times because I know you've <laughs> talked about these things and, and they can't, it can't be easy. But I think it's real important for people to understand, you know, your whole life, it's been quite, a, quite an odyssey to mm-hmm. start to finish. Mm-hmm. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang, and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aa.si.edu articulated. Special thanks to Gabby Seno for her research, energy, and insight. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aa.si.edu support. Thank you.